Well, any children here? Any kids, kindergarten to second grade? If there's any kids here who'd like to be dismissed to Children's Church, you can find that through the door over here by the piano. And I invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to uh, Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. So our kids are going to Children's Church. Would you turn to Proverbs chapter 5? It's on page 629 in the Pew Bible. So we continue our study in Proverbs and as we come to these texts on marriage and male and female relationships, God's Word has a lot of guidance for us in this area. We need a lot of guidance in this area. Let me, let me just do this. I'm just going to read chapter 5. It's a brief chapter, but I um, just want you to take the whole thing in and we'll start talking about it. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1. My son... Pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion, and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Now then, my son, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her door. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I've come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets? Your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. Sex, I have your attention now, is like nuclear energy. It's like nuclear power. Uh, It can bring great good or great destruction. Uh, Like nuclear power, if you harness that energy within the walls of a reactor and focus that energy, it can bring power and life to cities and regions. In the same way with a marriage, when that, you want to call it energy, that, that sexual thing that God has created in us, a good thing, when it's harnessed and contained within the walls of marriage, it not only energizes the couple, but 
then that couple, as a loving, energized couple, is able to minister to children and to friends and family so that the marriage can become a blessing through which God can touch others and touch the world. And on the other hand, just as when nuclear power is cut loose, when a reactor breaches, when atomic power is put in the form of a bomb, it causes great devastation. I mean, whole cities can be wiped out by one weapon. So in the same way, when, when sexuality is broken out of the boundaries of marriage, it causes great devastation. Uh, uh, and that is why adultery destroys everything it touches. It destroys. It, uh, you know, it not only hurts the couple, it affects their kids. It, it shakes churches. It can ruin businesses, extended families. As that blast wave from the atomic explosion surges outward, it not only goes outward, it also goes generationally and affects others in upcoming generations. It's amazing the power of it. My guess is that most of us here have in some way or another encountered the fallout from infidelity. Uh, whether maybe in our lives personally, hopefully not, but in some cases that's how it is. Or maybe someone we know. We have perhaps experienced the betrayed wife who um, alternates between gut-wrenching sobs and homicidal rage, on the other hand, back and forth. Perhaps we have uh, talked to the guy who committed the infidelity and finally he's woken up out of his almost like drug-like stupor come to his senses, perhaps after days or weeks, months, maybe even years, and he finally says, what was I doing? What was I thinking? I've lost it all, and for what? And, and the despair that sets in and the crushing guilt. Maybe we have seen the marriages that have survived the affair, but uh, there's like a scar there. It's invisible, but it remains, and something is, just seems amiss. The relationship, it's kind of off kilter, out of joint, out of socket in some ways. Or uh, we've seen the marriages that have not survived the affair. And you think, well, it's done, it's over, the divorce happened. But it never seems to end. The court battles just keep seeming to go on and on. And the money just hemorrhages out of uh, the, the couple's finances and, and to pay for court costs and this fee and that fee. And the family, the extended family is divided this one won't talk to that one because they're trying to be loyal to each other. It, it's so cousins don't talk to each other. I mean, it's just awful. The shockwave as it surges out and surges forward. So Proverbs chapter 5, um, it's a heavy chapter, but it's in the Bible. And we need to look at this because, you know what? It's in our world. It's in our lives. It's in our families. And God's Word has something very direct. And I think helpful to say to us about it. In fact, chapter 5 is not only about this topic. The second half of chapter 6, verses 20 to 35, the entirety of chapter 7. And so you got three chapters. Boom, boom, boom. It's not just in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's three chapters warning us and pleading with us and reasoning with us to, to beware of this. So we're just going to look at chapter 5 today. Uh, what you'll notice in chapter 5, as we just read through it, is that it falls into sort of two major chunks with a conclusion at the end. The first major chunk is verses 1 to 14, where the guy speaking to his son warns him of the ruin and fallout from infidelity. And then in chapters, uh, chapter 5, verses 15 to 20, 
it sort of shifts gears and it celebrates joyously God's original design for sexuality expressed within marriage. And then there's a little conclusion at the end, verses 21 to 23. I, I changed my sermon on Friday. Um, I had it all written out. I was going to preach the whole chapter. But as I was timing out the sermon, it was coming out like 45, 50, 55 minutes. And I thought, well, I could just sort of do the Puritan thing and preach for an hour. Uh, but I'm like, a summer, they're going to be wearing shorts, you know. Uh, this, you know. So I, I thought, okay, it's now, it's now two sermons. And so I'm, I'm going to preach on verses 1 to 14 this morning sort of warning against the dangers of infidelity as it appears here in the passage. And then next Sunday, we're going to talk really to husbands and to men about the need to love their wives. So women, um, you know, next Sunday, (laughs) if you have any way of manipulating, bribing, blackmailing your husband to come to church and you want to put, you know, knuckle some pressure on him, that's the Sunday, all right? where I'm going to be like aiming for husbands, you know, which includes myself, uh, with, with what God has said. But it's really encouraging stuff. And I've been encouraged just studying and thinking about how to love my wife better. So uh, anyway, but today we're going to look at the first 14 verses. It's intense, but it's really, uh, it's God's word. It's good. Look at verse 1. It says, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. So the thing begins, uh, picture a father sitting down with his son, and they're having the talk. That at some point, the father has to have with the son, and the, the mom has to have with the daughter. And, uh, you know, it's, maybe you're like, well, it's a little early for the talk. I'll tell you what, guys, if your kids are in schools, they're hearing this stuff, first grade, second grade. And we need to, you know, I want to be the one to tell my kids about sexuality. That's not the school's job. That's my job. The school will tell them about the mechanics. I want to tell them right and wrong. The school will not tell them what's right and what's wrong. That's our job as parents. And so don't shy away from this. Okay, this is, it may seem like, uh, but look, we have to be the ones as parents who teach this. And so here's a father teaching his son. And he says, son, I have to teach you about this. And then he says, verse 3, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Or again, look down at verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me. He's like begging them. You've got to listen. This is really important, son. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Now maybe uh, as you hear that, you go, huh, that seems a little sexist. You know, because, I mean, isn't it take two to have an infidelity? I mean, why is it just the woman who's the adulteress? I mean, why, why are the saying she's the bad one and he's the good Is that what it's saying? And I, I don't think so. I think, well, f- a couple things. Uh, first of all, the literary framework is of a father addressing the son. So I think part of it is just kind of the literary structure of it. But the other thing is, remember the original culture in which this was written. This was not written in postmodern 21st century America. It was written in a society where um, it was a patriarchy, it was a small village, and where women were very much protected. And they were protected under the roof of the father and then under the roof of the husband. And that sounds archaic and maybe even offensive to some of us. That's just how it was and how it still is in many parts of the world today. And, and so in that kind of culture where a woman is very much protected, almost like every home has, has a fence around it, a wall around it to protect the, the women within that family in a very rough, kind of hard-to-exist world, for a man then to have... Uh, 
an infidelity with a woman would require the woman on the inside of the fence opening the door. Okay? And so this is a warning in the small village kind of context of, you know, the one woman that everyone knows in town who is very happy to open the door. You see, that's the kind of context. It's very different where we live today. Um, but, you know, what's not different is the temptation to infidelity. And that's the point, which is not just something for men, but for women as well, as statistics show. So that's the point of this, is the warning against infidelity. Even though, it hap- even though the cultures are very different, yet the human heart is the same. The temptation is the same. The danger is the same as it was uh, when this was written um, 3,000 years ago. Humanity has not changed, morally speaking. We are the same. We've advanced technologically. Our medicine is light years beyond what it used to be. But morally, spiritually, humanity has not evolved at all. We're still sinners in need of a Savior, just as we were back then. And so here is this straight talk on adultery. What I find is interesting is verse 3. Notice the warnings about speech. And it took me a couple times reading it before that really jumped out at me. But it says, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, her speech is smoother than oil. And I was like, huh. Because when I think of this topic, I usually think of, well, it's a physical sort of thing. It's a physical infidelity. But you'll notice there is an emotional, relational infidelity that precedes it. That it begins with words. And it flows out of words. That there's an interaction that takes place first. In fact, put a bookmark here and go back, go over to chapter 7. I won't do the whole chapter, but... Chapter 7 gives this really vivid, what I find, frankly, unnerving description of temptation as it would have played itself out in those days in that culture. It says in chapter 7, verse 6, we kind of have this play-by-play. He says, At the window of my house I looked out through the lattice, I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men a youth who lacked judgment. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in, then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is loud and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him. And with a brazen face, she said, I have fellowship offerings at home. Today I fulfilled my vows, so I came out to meet you. I've looked for you and I found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be back till full moon. Here we go. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. And this line, this line just gets me. It's so powerful. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. And what a powerful description of temptation and then the moment of yielding to temptation. But notice her words. It's with her words that she woos him in and, and that's just important to understand and, and typically that's how it begins in your usual affair I mean, even hate to say that but it usually begins with words and the words that particularly appeal to a man are words of admiration and respect that this you know, I'll, I'll talk about this more in a couple of weeks but 
um, women, this is generally speaking, tend to want words of love. Men really want words of respect. They want to be respected and admired. And so when, you know, someone's like, wow, you know, the woman, the lady says to the guy, you did so great in that presentation in that meeting with the, with the customers. You're so good at public speaking. I could listen to you talk for hours, you know. Like, oh. And then there's the, you call it male ego, whatever you want to call it. It's just how it is. Or, wow, you're such a great golfer. I would love to, to golf with you. I'd, I, I'd love to take a lesson. Maybe you could teach me a little bit. Because you're great. Just, I've never seen a golfer like you. Or whatever it is. There's that admiration, that respect. Now, you couple that with, in some cases, that, you know, that maybe the guy comes home and walks in the door. Hi, honey, I'm home. You have not fixed the fridge yet. You know, what is wrong with you? I've asked you 20 times. Look, the kids are screaming. The spaghetti is overdone. Would you take care of that or that? I don't care what. Just, you know, do something to help around here. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then back over here. Oh, you're the greatest. I've thought. Right? I mean, that's how it happens. That's how it happens most of the time. And it's those words of respect that, that you know, men are very honor-based. They, they, they follow a code of honor. You know, they're, they're, it's like the military. It's honor, and they're willing to die for their buddies, and there's respect, and it's those, that kind of thinking. And so when there's not that respect, they, they wither, and when there is respect, they're like, huh, you know, they feel like a man because they're being respected and honored. And so in those words, someone is lured in and captured and brought into that relationship. And, and when I'm saying that, I want to be clear. I'm not blaming in that kind of scenario anything on the wife because if a man makes a decision, it's his decision and he's accountable for it. But all decisions happen in a context and they happen in an environment is all I'm saying. So uh, the man is drawn away through words. Words are powerful. Words precede actions. Thoughts precede words. Words precede actions. And then it takes place. You know, and I was thinking... If this was a danger back then, in that kind of little village where everybody knew everybody and everyone is another's business, and there still was a danger, how much more so today in the modern world, which is completely anonymous, where we have we don't know each other? You know, back then it's like everyone knew everybody, everyone knew each other's business, and everyone knew about that woman. So just stay away from her, son. Do you see her? That's the one. Really? Yeah, that one. Don't talk to her. Okay, right? But think about our world today that's completely anonymous, where people live in by the millions in crowded cities and yet don't know each other, where people feel lonely and isolated. I mean, that's the hallmark of life in the modern world is that people feel lonely and isolated. It's the things that people complain about the most. You know, we go into, people go into clubs to find each other and meet each other, and yeah, they cherry names, but they still don't really know each other. And in this modern world, a person works here and they live there. Unlike village life where it's all together. And so it's possible to have multiple universes in which a person lives. And in those multiple universes to have completely different moralities and boundaries. Not only that, but we communicate in such different ways. You know, again, let's go back 3,000 years to this agrarian village. If you wanted to have communication with the loose woman, you would have to find some way to actually talk to her. You'd have to find some way to sneak out at night and have a conversation. But in today's world, please. We have cell phones. We have text messages. 
We have private email accounts. We have instant messaging. There are so many ways to have private conversations. And so, so many times infidelities uh, are these kind of online intimacies where we're sharing private things with words and emails and enjoying a kind of private intimacy that perhaps sometimes fuels over into uh, a physical intimacy. But it's the same principle at work. And there's another problem in our world today that's, I think, far greater than they obviously didn't have back then. Because today, the, the immoral woman, or man, as the case may be, has actually come into our homes. Actually, is in our houses. It actually, unbidden, comes into our homes. And is there, and is staring at us. And I'm talking about this new epidemic of internet pornography. You know, we don't talk a lot about that. There's not a lot of discussion about it. But people, I am convinced this is like a spiritual bubonic plague that is ravaging the soul of our country and of the world. I mean, we don't talk about how devastating this is. It is devastating. Let me give you some statistics. These aren't exact because the Internet's always changing. So you don't know exactly how many sites there are. But it is estimated that there are four... 0.2 million pornographic sites on the internet. That is 12% of the entire World Wide Web. 12%. I mean, it's huge. Amounts to an estimated 420 million individual web pages. Um, It is a $5 billion a year industry. That's huge money that's going on online. It's estimated that there are 40 million adults in America who regularly visit pornographic websites. Um, 72% are men, 28% are women. So while this is still predominantly a male problem, it's not exclusively a male problem. Um, A survey of lawyers uh, recently uh, asking them, what is it that's contributing to divorces today? And they said that unlike even five or six years ago, today, uh, maybe even up to half of the, the divorces that they are working through one of the major components of the divorce is online pornography. That this is just becoming a massive thing that's ripping apart the moral fabric of our nation. And here's the statistic that just made me kind of want to hurl. The average age of the first time exposure to internet pornography, 11. And the thing is, it's not because kids are looking for it. It finds you. It hunts you down. It comes after you. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to go on. I'm going to get some news off this website. And, and there's the news. And then there's a sidebar ad. And all it takes is you just have to move the mouse. To, you just have to be able to do this. Click. You know, and some of you, some of you, you know, from old days, you remember if you wanted to be involved in that stuff, you had to drive to the creepy building at the end of town that was, had no windows, you know. And you didn't want to see your car driving over there. And that was the adult whatever store. And, and so if you wanted to do that, then you had to risk people seeing you. You don't have to do that today. You just have to go click, click. And then you see a site, and then there's a link to an even more racy site. Click, 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 click. And, you know, anyone can do click, click. It's terrifyingly simple and easy. And then uh, robots, uh, they're called bots. They, they, get you, they scan in, uh, websites, and they grasp and harvest email addresses. And then there's programs with sort of algorithms in it that just send out bulk emails and send them out to addresses hoping they get a hit. And so you go to check your email one day and you're like, hey, what's, what's in my email? Like, wow, where did that come from? How did they find me? And it finds you. 
And so you put software on your computers to protect your children from this. And then they go to school and someone's got an iPhone. And they go, hey, check it out. It's, it's so insidious. And I believe it's just a plague that, that is affecting the, the soul of our nation. It's something we don't even think about, how destructive this is to hearts and minds. You talk to high school students and the question isn't, you know, which of your friends are looking at pornography? The question is, which of them aren't? Who isn't? It's so rampant. And I, I believe that, that internet pornography is just something that was... I, I mean, I almost believe it's like Satan himself invented it. It's too diabolical. It's too good. It appeals too precisely to male weakness. Number one, it's visual, which, you know, everyone knows that's the way men are... God made men. Number two, it's risky, which... Guys like risks and adventure and taking risks. Number three, it's a kind of escapism that involves a TV screen. I mean, perfectly tailored for guys. You know, man and woman have a tough day. Husband has a tough day. Wife has a tough day. They come home. How do they deal with their tough day? What does the woman want to do to deal with her tough day? Talk, right? Generally speaking. That's how, that's how God made women. And, and so they, they talk. They want to talk. They want to process. They want to share feelings. They don't want you to fix it, okay? They just want you to listen. I'm a, wow. I've apparently struck a nerve. Um, I'm learning, though. They don't want a solution. They just want you to understand most of the time. It's just talking. It's listening. And it's, I'm, not, I'm not belittling it. It's just the way God wired up women. It's his beautiful design. And what do men want when they're tired and stressed out after a long day work? They want silence. <laughs> this is a real divine joke. You can see this. <laughs> you know? But he, God wants us to understand each other. That's why he made men and women so different, so that we learn to get past ourselves and focus on another person, learn what love really means, which is to sacrifice your own nature and to care for someone else the way they receive love. So, but men want silence. They want to escape. And now there's this computer screen it's so evil. I, I believe that, that this internet pornography was cooked up in hell in Satan's R&D labs, specifically designed. And as a result, even godly men who are good husbands and love their families and are active in their churches, are just you know, guys who love the Lord. This is so powerful that even they find themselves wrapped in its coils. And they're like, how did I get here? How did this happen? It's so, so too easy for it to happen. And I don't know how we, I don't know how we sort of break the ice about that as a church. I don't know how we sort of open that up so that, so that we can say to another, someone else we trust, I need help. I, mean, I don't know how you do that, but somehow... The church has to be a place where we can do that, where we can call out to each other and lean on each other. <clears throat> because if we don't, if we don't find a way of supporting each other and praying for each other, and you know, and specifically I'm talking to men, find ways to take up arms together as fellow comrades and fight back together, like a unit, like a platoon fighting back against sin. If we don't find ways to do that, what will happen is that the consequences of sex outside of marriage, whether it's adultery, whether it's premarital sex, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's uh, internet pornography, any sex outside of marriage is just devastating. It's devastating. And if we don't find a way to fight back against it, what happens is it will take its toll on us. And that's what the second half of this uh, next verses in chapter 5. Go back to chapter 5. 
they list the consequences of adultery. It says, now, verse 7, Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep a path far from her door. Do not go near the door of her house. Here we go. Here are the consequences. Lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. When you're in an illicit relationship, the strength God has given you, your emotional strength, your mental strength, your spiritual strength, your resources, instead of being harnessed to work for the good of your children and your family and your community, all of those, those strengths God's given in your person are being poured out into someone else who you're not connected to. They're being poured out into a side relationship. And so it's like a vampire sucking the life out of you. And yes, we're physically present with our families, but our hearts and minds and emotions and imaginations are being channeled elsewhere. And so it sucks the strength out of us. Uh, look what it says in verse 10. Lest, you, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. Uh, you know, having an affair is costly. It's expensive to keep a mistress. Right? I don't know why guys want to pay for a wife and a girlfriend at the same time, but they do. And it's expensive. It's expensive. Prostitution is expensive. Obviously, online pornography is making money. It drains resources. If you get divorced because of an infidelity, it is so expensive. And the family just hemorrhages money. And the only people who make out are the divorce lawyers. They're the only ones who make out. Verse 11, this is the one. Verse 11 to 14, I just found chilling. This is just chilling. Look at verse 11. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. At the end of your life, you know, when all the time left on the shot clock, uh, on the game clock is like two seconds left. There's no time left. The buzzer is about to sound. And you will say, verse 12, how I hated discipline. How my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I've come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. Here's this person at the end of their life. They now have literally you know, not a minute or a day left to make amends for what's happened in their life. And they look back in their life and they see a wife who they've crushed with their behavior. They see children who don't really care about them. Because they're like, whatever, I've written you off. And they see relationships that have been devastated. And they see the repercussions now affecting their grandchildren. And there's nothing they can do. It's the end of their life. No time left to fix it. Just that cry, oh, why didn't I listen? I mean, so heart-wrenching. But even that is not as terrifying as the fact that when that life ends, the consequences are just beginning. Because then we have to face holy God. Holy God who's given us this life that we have rejected His laws and His ways and His way of doing life. And we pick that up in verse 21. If I could just jump over. Like I said, we're going to come back to verses 15 to 20 next Sunday. A very joyous image of Marriage, But look at verse 21. It's, this is the ending warning. It says, For man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. God sees it all. He sees 
behind the hotel door into the darkness. God sees the emails that are deleted. He hears the voicemails that are deleted. God sees it all. He knows. And there's a consequence. We must someday face him. Look what it says in verses 22 and 23. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. You know, when I was thinking about this whole topic of, of sexual sin, it, I thought about um, those shows like on the Animal Planet or whatever where they, they show a, a constrictor attacking some animal. How it slithers up and sneaks up and then, wham, it grabs the animal and like a split second wraps around it and then just begins to squeeze the animal until it dies. I feel like that's, that's what it's like. That's what sin is like. Not just this sin, but all sin. is It grabs us and then it squeezes the life and then swallows us if we don't break free. So we have to break free. You know, and, and I guess that's what I, I just want to call out to all of us this morning and say we have to break free from this. We have to flee while there's still time before the shot clock runs out. You know, the shot clock has not run out yet. There's still time. There's still time to turn back to the Lord. I heard a story. Someone in our church told me. This person in our church had heard the pastor, another pastor, tell this story. Um, and it, it, I just found it very moving. The, the pastor um, he had some problems with his computer and some guy from church came over and some techie guy and fixed it all. And, and then at the end of it, the, the techie guy was like, you know, pastor, um, I'm here to help. I, I, I don't judge you and I'm, I want to help you if you need some help. And, Pastor's like, what? He's like, well, you know, I, I was on your computer and I see the, the pornography everywhere. He's like, what? He's like, what do you mean? He's, you know, and he was kind of incredulous and they talked back and forth. And, and, um, and, and the guy said, well, does anyone else use your computer? He's like, no one else uses my computer. And then he thought and he realized his son used his computer as well. And I didn't hear from the person who told me the story how old his son was, but I had a sense he was older, like maybe high school or college or something like that. And um, and the pastor was like, oh. So he, he uh, later he finally had a time when he could talk to his son. And, and it just as the conversation was ending, he said, you know, son, by the way, he said, there's anything you're struggling with that you want to tell me. He said, I, I want to be here for you, and, and I'm, I'm ready to listen. And, and if there's anything you need help with, just let me know. And the son was like, ah, oh, I'm fine, Dad, I'm fine. And he, he got up to walk out of the room, and then he just stopped and began sobbing. And then just turned around and said, Dad, Dad, I need help. Dad, I need help. And we need to turn to our Heavenly Father and say, Dad, I need help. We need to cry out to God. And I want to tell you that the God we serve is ready to help. He is the Father from the parable of the prodigal son who in that boy went out and wrecked his life with wild living and ended up living in pigsties. When he finally came home, the father ran to him. So God will run to you if you will turn and say, Father, I need help. How do I know? Because he sent his son to die already for those sins. That's how I know he loves. It's because he sent his son Jesus, the obedient son, the holy son, who always does the Father's will, in whom there is not a taint of impurity. His Son, Jesus Christ, came, and on the cross He died. Look at verse 22 again. It says of the evil man, the cords of his sin hold him fast. 
Well, Jesus was be willing to be held fast to a cross, but not with cords, with nails. And it says in verse 23, He will die for lack of discipline. Well, the Son, Jesus, was willing to die and to receive the discipline and judgment that we deserve for our sins. So that all of the consequences of our infidelities, whether sexual or otherwise, whatever our sins are, were poured out on Christ. Where we have been unfaithful, Jesus has been faithful. And Christ was crucified. And, and Jesus, Jesus can save. He can forgive. You're like, oh, I'm too dirty. No. The blood of Jesus cleanses from all unrighteousness. I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing I can say to you as a pastor that can cleanse you. There's nothing a therapist can tell you that will cleanse you. There is no medication or treatment program that can cleanse you from your guilt before God. Only the blood of Christ can do that. And it was shed for our salvation. And so, like that son, turn back and call out to the Father. I uh, read this this is a good book. It's called Can Man Live Without God? If you have questions about is there a God and does life make sense with or without God, this is a great book. I'll leave it down here at the end if you want to look at it. But it's by Rabbi Zacharias. And he tells a story. Uh, it's a story that was actually told on a number of occasions by a missionary to India. The missionary's name was Stanley Jones. And Stanley Jones, he was well known in India in his day. He knew Mahatma Gandhi. I guess Mahatma Gandhi really respected him because of his life and his integrity. And anyway, uh, Stanley Jones knew this Hindu government official and he would often tell him about Jesus and tell him that Jesus was the Savior and that God showed His love by sending Christ to die for us. And this guy didn't make any sense. He's like, what do you mean His love was shown by crucifying His Son? Like, I don't understand that. It didn't make any sense to him. But then Zacharias writes, One day, through a series of circumstances, the man involved himself in an extramarital affair that tormented his conscience. He could live with himself no longer. And finally, looking into the eyes of his devoted wife, he told her the heart-rending story of his betrayal. The hours and days of anguish and pain became weeks of heaviness in her heart. Yet, as she weathered the early shock, she confessed to him not only her deep sense of hurt, but also the promise of her undying commitment and love. Suddenly, Almost like a flash of lightning illuminating the night sky and the landscape below, he found himself muttering, Now I know what it means to see love crucified by sin. And he bent his knee in worship of his Savior and embraced his wife anew with the solemnity of love's binding commitment. That's what the cross is all about. It's about God allowing his love to be crucified by our sin. And there's forgiveness with Him. And so, brothers and sisters, let us turn back. Let us turn to the cross again. Let us experience the cleansing and, and forgiving power that only God can give through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank You that You're here right now. That You're here with us. I thank You, Holy Spirit, that You're present. I thank You, Jesus, that You're risen from the dead and that You're here by Your Spirit. That, God, You're not far away. You're not sitting off in heaven distant from us, but that You're near, that Your arms are open. 
that, Lord, you, you want nothing more than to see sin and Satan defeated in our lives. So, God, I just thank you that you're for us and not against us. And that we can look to the cross and know that you're for us and not against us. And, God, I just pray that, that we would turn to you. We would turn to you with our sin, no matter what it is. That we would turn to you with our infidelities, no matter what they are. That, Lord, we'd lay them down. That we would turn to you and say, Father, I need help. And that, God, you would forgive us and cleanse us. Lord, I pray that you would reach out in love and you would draw us back. That you would uh, release us from the serpent's grip. Lord, be at work in our church and our lives. I pray, God, this would be a kind of church where we can be honest and open with each other. Where we can understand your grace. That your grace would just fill this church. And that we could come and be forgiven and saved as we confess our sins and put our faith in Christ. And so, Lord, do your work among us through your spirit now. We pray this in Jesus' name.